This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Nothing can replace the pleasure of turning the pages of the printed book. Join us now as we explore our city's rich literary heritage, talking with people who are passionate about the printed word and celebrating the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute's fascinating local history. Welcome to Wireless Books. Welcome everyone and welcome Christine to another edition of Wireless Books. I still can't believe we're in 2023. Yes, indeed. I'm very disappointed in you. I've given you long enough. For what? (laughs) I paid my subscription before it was due. Well, I was happy too. (laughs) Well, I didn't turn around and then give you a bill for your subscription, so there you go. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that could have happened, you know. It could well have. Yes, I I like to be. I like to be a profit centre if I possibly can. Now, oh, this was so long ago. Last year, we I started talking about A.A. A. Milne or Alan Alexander Milne, the writer of all the Winnie the Pooh books. And oh, it was so long ago, I actually had to re-listen to what I said. And first of all, in that show, I was in my book reviews, I was talking about books being um, cradle-to-grave books, and I was talking about Charles Dickens. And for some reason, I started talking about Charles Dickinson, whoever he is, and I, <laughs> I did it at least twice, and so I'm filled with shame, and I have to humbly apologise, listeners. So there you go. Now, when I was talking about Alan Milne, I was t- talked about his wife, and I think I was a little bit unfair to her. Um, I think her name was is Daphne, because... I, when she was an older woman, or she was, she's known in the village they lived as being a bit of a snob, and she, she loved her garden, but of course she had gardeners to boss around. But really, their marriage was very successful at the start. When they were young and newlyweds, they they fed off each other, and she was very involved in his career. And when he went to the First World War, they actually rented a house, I think, in Dover, so that. Um, when he was being an instructor and teaching other people how to do radio communications for the army, they could be close together. They, and they, he started writing his first play during that time and she acted as a secretary. In fact, she acted as a secretary for most of his career. Now, she wasn't actually a very good secretary mm-hmm. and she, she had terrible writing and she, she kept forgetting things and so people would turn up to events and he, would, and he wouldn't because <laughs> she'd forgotten to, to inform them. And she, could, she would send off... Um, Rather slapdash notes to people, and they would get offended. But any, but the thing is, the, she was willing, and she, so she was very involved. free, probably. Yeah. Well, Mum quite often talked about this: how writers love to have somebody who, who thinks that their work is great and is enthusiastic, and that's what she was to him. She, she had a similar sense of humour to him, and she sparked things off with him, and. So they enjoyed each other's company and she was very involved in his career and so they were a very, they were a great couple for a very long time. So anyway, he came back from the war, um, there was no job for him at Punch and so this sort of, his cosy little um, setup was had disappeared but the play that he had been working on during, well, in off times in the army, he actually got that produced, and it was a great success. It, um, 
it's played on both sides of the Atlantic, so in, in London and in mm. New York. So he was very successful and he kept writing these plays and they all did very, very well. And so he became one of the top playwrights in England in the early 1920s and he was making about £500 a week, which was probably what um, the average person would make in a year. So he was, he was coining dough. And then... <laughs> He was one of these people that he he must be full of ideas because he actually wrote a murder mystery, and it his publishers were not keen. They they sort of tried to talk him out of it, but he he had this great idea for a murder mystery, and so he got, it was published and it was a sensation. It was a big hit, and so then his publishers were desperate for him to write more. <laughs> And he refused. <laughs> <laughs> Leave them wanting more. Well, ex- right. exactly. And then he he came up with, then he and his wife had a child, and Christ, the famous Christopher Robin. Now Christopher Robin, um, A. A. Milne had this idea that Christopher Robin was going to be a batsman for England's cricket team. So he wanted him to have good initials for when he appeared on the batting order. So C. R. Milne, he thought, sounded rather good. So that's how Christopher <laughs> Robin came to be. But they never, they never called him Christopher or, or Christopher Robin. They actually called him Billy because they they christened him Christopher Robin, and then they wanted to call him. Billy, and they, but they didn't want to name him Willie. It was sort of a bit how yeah, people are weird about oh, names. They're artistic. they're artistic. So they called him Billy, and then when he got a bit older and could, was starting to talk, he couldn't pronounce Moon, so he called himself Billy Moon. And so, oh. so that's sweet, isn't it? So they mm. called him Billy Moon, and so or or just Moon, and. And A. A. Milne was was blue in the family, so everybody had a, a cute nickname. Mm. And so when they started, when he first of all he started off writing these short poems about um, you know praying, you know saying my prayers and all that mm. sort of cute, and that became a big sensation. And then they published a book of these poems, and his publisher was not keen. He think, thought it was a big mistake, and he really should just write another murder mystery. <laughs> but Milne uh-huh. insisted, and boy, it just flew off the shelves, and it was a huge hit. And so he started to write more of these children things. And he wrote, I think he wrote about four in the end. And then he, he got fed up with it because it was so popular and that's all, all people wanted to write, talk about. And he wanted to go back to writing plays. And, of course, his publishers were not happy then. They wanted him to keep <laughs> writing about Buck Robin. So he sort of had this career where he was enormously successful, but people... Every time he became successful, people wanted him to keep on doing what he'd been doing, and he always wanted to change tack. And so anyway, Christopher Robin famously had these stuff, these toys that his that his mother had, and she would she would play with them and make games about or st- scenarios and stories about the animal, about the the stuffed toys, and. And Milne would join in as well, and so it was sort of a communal thing they did, and then that sort of got sort of turned into the stories. So it was all sort of a, a big family enterprise, but when they published the stories, they were quite happy to call them stories about Christopher Robin, because in their mind, Christopher Robin wasn't Christopher Robin, he was Billy Moon, and mm. it's just that sort of weird disconnect, and of course, they, I guess they never expected to be that, that famous. And so people... And then they sort of almost had um, 
journalists staking their house out wanting to get interviews with Christopher Robin and it was all a bit crazy for a long time. And so then he decided he was not going to do any more Christopher Robin stories and this by that stage it was the 30s and he decided he was going to write a book explaining why pacifism was the answer and we shouldn't have any more wars and he he spent a couple of years researching it and he wrote this book a this anti-war book and it was also enormously successful it sold and it sold and it sold but he was but he had been a pacif he always been a pacifist but he went to the first world war because he thought well once my country's at war I'm even though I'm a pacifist I'm obliged to mm. to help out and when the second world war started he he became, he joined the home guard now one of the interesting things about Milne is he hated hierarchi- hierarchical organizations he liked to be on equal terms with people and so he wasn't very good with Christopher Robin when he was a little child, but once he became older and he could talk to him and reason with him, they became pals. And and um, his niece once said that the thing about the Milnes is they're all emotionally 12 years old. So, <laughs> I like that. I think that's a good emotional age. Yes, to so, be very unpredictable, of course. But, yes. Yeah. So... So anyway, he when he was in the Home Guard, he he although he had the um, he was a lieutenant from the First World War. He insisted that everybody just call him Mister Milne because he didn't want to be called Lieutenant Milne. He just he he was sort of the opposite of Captain Mannering. Yeah, <laughs> and and so he served in the Home Guard. And Christopher Robin was a young adult at that stage, and he went off to the Second World War. He was actually rejected to start with because he had knocked knees or something. But his father pulled strings and got oh, him in, and got him into the infantry. Oh, and well, it was quite sad because he served in Egypt, and he actually was wounded at one stage. And they they got a telegram telling them that Christopher Robin um, had been wounded, and then they. Spent about a week not knowing what had happened and thinking all the terrible things that being wounded could have mm. meant, but actually it was apparently it was a very slight wound and Christopher Robin recovered almost immediately and was off having a nice, lovely time, and he never thought to contact his parents and nobody contacted them, <laughs> so they had a week of agony. Aww. Well, it wasn't very good and and but but Milne actually. Um, he got the army to change their policies and so that um, families who had been told that their children were wounded would be informed as quickly as possible about the outcome of the wounds. Yeah, well, because, you know, he's a young man and he wouldn't, and they don't. Even no. They, they don't realise that their parents are missing them every day and worried every day and then when they're being told that he's been wounded, they he knows he's OK. He just assumes his parents. Exactly. It's exactly okay. the sort of thing yeah. a young person would do. I have to say this photo of Christopher Robin, or Billy Moon, taken on March um, 1928, is the exact... Uh, my grandson Arlo, who's seven, looks looks just like him. Oh, well, you better get your writing pen out. <laughs> Make him famous. Now, Christopher Robin had been very close to his father during his adolescence but then he went away to war and he came back as an adult and he was disenchanted with his parents he felt that them, his father writing about him as Christopher Robin had kind of blighted his life because mm. he got teased yeah. enormously at school and 
And so when people met him, they immediately brought up the Christopher Robin thing and it just was Mm. very tedious and annoying for Mm. him. So he went off to London and he met a young... He was... His step-grandmother introduced him to one of his cousins and it was the daughter of the brother that Daphne was estranged from. I talked about it um, Mm. last year. Mm. And she was... and so he married his cousin, and of course he picked the one woman that his parents would dislike the most. <laughs> um, children seem to have a very, um, like a, a radar for that sort of thing, <laughs> a honing sense. They just hone in for what's really going to push your buttons, and they go for it. So he married this girl, and so they were estranged. And but it just, and then when after his father died and his mother died, he wrote his biography about being Christopher Robin, and mm. and it was he sort of vented all his frustrations about it and so it sort of tainted Milne's reputation and a lot of the things that Christopher Robin accuses him of are not quite right they're just sort of his he's just seeing it from his point Mm. of view and yes his father probably should have known better than to use his name in the books but he he just honestly didn't think it was going to be that big a thing Mm. so yeah it's really quite fascinating and um there you go. So, what does what did uh, Christopher Robin do? And his well, see, see the um, well, he'd obviously be head of all of his his father's works once his father no, died. No, no. Once his father died, his mother got that, and his oh. mother sold the copyright to somebody who then sold it to Disney. But Christopher Robin didn't care because he sort of wanted didn't want anything to mm. do with it. And um, for example, he he had the toys and he gave them to somebody. A publisher over in America, and they now live in the um, the New York Library. So, that's, yeah, it's kind of sad, but he no, he but d- that's lovely too, though that people get to seem mm. like it's part of a library, not in yes, well, house. like and all of um, Milm's papers and stuff are in a, a library in Texas because um, Daphne sold them to them because she want she tried to give them to Cambridge and they weren't interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, typical. <laughs> Um, now Christopher Robin actually in the end brought um, became a bookseller and his, his mother said I don't understand it, he doesn't like business and surely he's going to meet all the people who want to talk to him about being Christopher Robin which he says he hates, which you know is correct but apparently he very much enjoyed being a bookseller so there you go Did he get so did he have any children? He had a daughter who um, unfortunately was born with um with disabilities and um, so all the money that he got he put to a foundation for people with the same oh problem. how wonderful so uh, yeah. I think it's spina bifida that she oh. had and so she grew and she lived until her her 50s and, oh, and yeah. until she you know died of her of her illness mm. but she was very involved in um, the charity that he he and his wife had founded for for her and oh. for people like her so yeah they they were all very nice people yeah. it's just that people can um, get yeah yeah get well, their noses yeah. out of joint over stuff yeah it's like Jay and Barry isn't it leaving um of some of the rights to his books, Peter Pan, to the Great Ormond Street mm. Children's Well, he never hospital. had children of his yeah, own. No, so. but I mean, just, yeah, this really makes your heart sing, doesn't it? Well, it's it's nicer than, I don't know, um, trying to hoard the money all to yourself. That's true. Look, you've done As so I well. As I would do. <laughs> and you've got a beautiful pile of books, and so I'm going to give you a break.
get the correct button and hear it. Sting away. Oh, yes, that's it. Going now. For more information on the Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, go to www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz. That's Dunedin, A-T-H-E-N-A-E-U-M.org.nz. Welcome back. Now, I've got the latest Peter Robinson book, Not Dark Yet, and he wrote the Alan Banks crime novels. Now, it's very sad news. A couple of months ago, we heard that Peter Robinson had actually died. Mm. Now, I don't know if this will be the last book. Um, yes, it's book 27. So he's he's written a lot, and it's been the television series. So they might continue it. They might get other people in to write it. And he might even have left other manuscripts. I do not know. So anyway, this starts with a gruesome double murder which seems like it's pretty obviously, it seems to be linked to the Albanian Mafia. And it's an open and shut case, really, except they find a whole lot of spy cam videos hidden in the house. And when they watch them, it changes the um, the direction of the investigation. There seems to have been an assault on a young girl. And so it looks like that's the motivation behind the murders. And yeah, so they, in the meantime, Bank has a friend who was a refugee. Um, she was she was an orphan in um, Moldova, and she was kidnapped outside the orphanage, um, abducted, raped, and enslaved, and then taken to the UK to work as a prostitute. And mm-hmm. yeah, Banks, I think, obviously helped her get out of that situation. But she's decided that after Brexit. Um, the UK is no longer a safe place for her as a person who's not um, obviously British. And so she decides she's going to go back to Moldova and try and track down um, the men who did this, who did the horrible things to her. And of course she's stirring up the murky waters of the past and that leads to danger for everyone. So yeah, this seems like it's pretty much as good as all the rest. Now, I've got a book that you'll be wanting to have. It's by Chris Hammer, the Australian author. Oh, love Chris Hammer. Mm, and it's The Tilt. It's Hammer Time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for me laughing to the mic. I wasn't expecting <laughs> Beth to make me laugh like that. Now, this is actually a new series. So she, he's got um, a new homicide detective called Nell Birchin. And she comes from a small country town in Australia and she's been sent back there to investigate a decades-old m- murder. So she's she's not really particularly pleased about it. She's thrilled to have you know, made homicide and stuff and uh, it seems like her career's opening up and then she's sent back to check out an old murder and it seems like the dud end of, of the stick. But mm. then they discover more bodies and there's a chain of escalating events and in the present. So suddenly it's a huge case and she's, as she starts to join the pieces together she gets begins to question how well she truly knows those closest to her and is her own family implicated in some way. Ooh. Now this is always a very fertile um, field, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of... Um, the dry with Jane Harper, with you know, you go back to your country, t- your hometown, and you start un- you know turning over rocks and finding all these things that you never noticed when you were growing up. So there, the tilt, 
The yeah. darkest secrets lie closest to home. Oh, he's just a great storyteller. Just wonderful. Now, this is going to excite a lot of people. This is the latest Louise Penny, A World of Curiosities. And this is book 18 in her Three Pines series. Yes, that's what I was watching on mm. Prime Video, Three pa- um, Pines. Yes. It was the first, uh, I think it was the first, well, it was the first series that they yeah. brought out. Yeah. Well, in this book, they actually um, revisit the very first um, crime that Inspector Gamache um, investigated with his um, second in charge, Jean Guy Bouvier. And so they, this case comes up again in a way and they go back and, and look into it again. And so you sort of have flashbacks and seeing how they got, how they, how they got together <laughs> in a professional sense. So the first case, was that the one where the woman got electrocuted? No, this is a case that she's never dealt with before. This ah, is the very right, first case back. Yeah, this is when they first started to work together okay. as detectives. Right. And at the same time, in the village, somebody discovers a very old letter, about 100 years old, by a stonemason who describes um, bricking up... Um, a room in one of the houses in the village and how terrified he was and, and how the what he was bricking up was horrific. Mm-hmm. And so being the villagers, they decide, let's work out where this place is. And so, of course, they find it and they, then they think, oh, well, let's unbrick it and find out what's in there. And so when they do, <laughs> they find a world of curiosities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, he, and he works out there's more in that room than meets the eye. There are puzzles within puzzles and hidden messages warning of mayhem and revenge. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, yes. And there are people that are just going to, they, they will literally grab this out of my hands. I will have to. Oh, yes. I will have to ration it. Yes, you will. Goodness me. Now, this is another book that's much the same. This is the latest lead child, and it's called No Plan B. And Richer is in another small town, and he's he's gone to get a coffee, and he sees a woman run over. Um, and there's two. There's Richer who sees something, and somebody else who who sees something else. They just see a woman jump in front of a of a truck and commit suicide. Yeah. But Richer sees a man push her, and then when the truck is stalled over her body this person reaches under and grabs her handbag and runs away with it and so Richard knows that there's something up and he starts to investigate so Richard follows the killer he doesn't stop and have a chat to the police he just follows the killer trying to work out what's going on and he uncovers a sinister secret conspiracy with powerful people on the take so there there you go. So mm. this is pretty classic Jack, Jack Reacher. Mm. Now, sorry, just going back to Chris Hammer, <laughs> the tilt. Yes, um, Nell Buchanan. Now, Nell, I know she's a newly minted detective in mm. this book, but she has been a character in his yeah. previous book. So it's lovely that um, he keeps the consistency going and we see a character grow. Now, I've got the latest Val McDermott, 1989. This is the second one of her um, ones where she started off 
1979 with a journalist, Ali Burns. So 10 years on, um, she's still got crimes to investigate and she's working for a newspaper empire which is very much like Robert Maxwell. And of course, Robert Maxwell is uh, Gisela... Giselle. Yeah, Giselle. How do you say Giseline, that? something like that. Yeah. Maxwell. Or something, yeah. No, it's... G- yeah, all right, all right. Anyway, all right. let's com- <laughs> argue about that later. She... So the... That those are the sort of characters that are involved, and she's uncovering. Um, so she's. This is another one where she's ex- working out the exploitation of society's most um, vulnerable, which of course he leads her to the East East Berlin, and yeah. So yeah. Oh, 1989. Of course, when the wall came down. Yeah. Ah, got you. Yep. Mm. Love Fell McDermott. You're on a you're on a roll, Christine. Keep going. Trisha Stringer, keeping up appearances. Now she's another Australian writer, and she writes these big, hefty um, family tones. And this is about a small town, Baranda, and um, three hundred people live there, and everybody knows each other's business. And we're following um, a young woman, Paige, who has escaped from the city, probably from an abusive husband, with her three children, and she's trying to keep low profile, and she's kind of expecting. The one thing she does for herself is to go to a fitness class every Tuesday and she expects the other woman to be very curious about her, but they have their own problems. And that's mm. that. And finally, I have a true story, Colditz, Prisoners of the Castle by Ben McIntyre. Now that will be, yes. that will fly off the shelves. This is amazing because, of course, the first story about Colditz was written by one of the prisoners himself mm. and, of course, he presented it the way he wanted mm. to see it. And so Ben McIntyre's gone back and looked at it, not just from the British perspective, there were Dutch people there, Mm. there were the Polish, Mm. and also there was a class of prisoners who were the servants of the officers and they weren't allowed to escape. Oh. And yes, so it's a very different take, mm. but but fascinating. Haunting. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for the book. So all of you members of the Athenaeum, when that jolly, uh, when those library doors open again, come on and okay. Until next time, everyone. Happy reading. Happy reading. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute welcomes new members. Enjoy the Athenaeum's quiet, warmly carpeted library and reading room and share in the joy of books, new and old. Visit www.dunedinathenaeum.org.nz for more information or pop into the Athenaeum Library at number 24, The Octagon. The Dunedin Athenaeum and Mechanics Institute, celebrating Dunedin's rich literary heritage since 1851. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.